Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Well, what a week. The Sue Gray report finally landed. After much anticipation, what did it tell us? I mean, in a sense, we already knew quite a lot of what was in the report, but I think it's worth underlining some of it. When the country was subject to severe lockdown rules because of a deadly pandemic, which has killed up to 170,000 of our fellow citizens, lockdown rules, which it should be said, banned handshakes, let alone hugs. Number 10 officials drank beer for a second until they vomited, spilled wine down walls, broke a child's swing, organised events cutely named Wine Time Friday and Wine and Cheese Evening, alongside a secret Santa. Lovely. Entertain themselves with a karaoke machine, which I'm not joking, was provided by the former Director General for Propriety and Ethics, and partied until after 4am. Um, now, in terms of did they know what was right or wrong, they did. <laughs> but what they spoke about in these messages revealed in the Seagrave report was what was deemed a comms risk. Um in the words of Boris Johnson's private secretary, Martin Reynolds, he boasted they seem to have got away with their illicit drinks. Now, I have to say myself, one of the most, I think the most damning part of the report from, from my own perspective was that Sue Gray detailed a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff. Now, I raise this because it's something that's always been impressed upon me. Um, it's kind of an odd thing. To, I, think it's, I think it's a fair, fair comment to say this. So you normally can't judge people based on a first impression. I mean, that's what people often say. You know, someone might be having a bad day. Something terrible might have happened to them. There is one very clear exception to this when you can just judge a person's character immediately, which is if they are nice to you, but are, they are not nice to the waiter, they're not a nice person. And the reason for that is someone who is not in a position of power and authority who can't speak back and has very limited redress, being spoken to in a way which is abusive, haranguing, bullying, that tells you all you need to know about that person. Now, the fact that number 10 officials, many of them have tr have spoken to underpaid, undervalued staff in a contemptuous way, which has been highlighted by an official report, I think speaks volumes about the character of some of the people working in number 10. Now, I actually attended a protest outside number 10 on Friday, organised by Trade Union United Voices of the World, which has unionised some of the cleaners and other staff, underpaid staff, who work in government buildings. I just want to show you just quickly a little clip of one of the cleaners speaking outside number 10. We are here today to say, rules are one, rules are all. No matter what cabinet you sit into, you are not above the law of this land or yeah. any land where you're from. So we want support for the cleaners who want to higher wages because we work hard enough and they look down on us like we are the dirt that we clean, consuming human pollution wherever we work because we want an honest pay so we should get it as we deserve to have it. Thank you, guys. Now, 
George Osborne, the former Challenge the Exchequer, tweeted out in response to the Sea Grey report that passage. One of the things I remember most about living in Downing Street was how amazingly friendly, generous and kind the team who keep the place going are. The cleaners, custodians, front of house and police, working all hours, not very well paid, but always there for us. Oh, that's sweet, isn't it? Just out of interest, George Osborne, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, do you know anyone who might have maybe had a say in how well these, what you described as not very well-paid staff who's, uh, who, who you have showered with praise because of how well they did their job? Any, any idea who could increase their pay at the time? <laughs> Honestly. Anyway, we've got lots to talk about today. We're very lucky uh, about to introduce a brilliant guest, very well-connected, um, knows the lay of the land in the Tory party in a way that I'll be honest with you, I'm not an, an absolute expert. I don't, as you, not not to surprise anyone, don't spend many an evening chatting to Tory ministers on phones, for example. Um, they won't return my calls. Um, so it's great to be able to speak to someone who, who knows the Conservative Party very well. But also I'm interested, we'll talk about, he's got a paperback version of his book coming out, which I will also talk about, which looks at the new, I suppose, Tory voter coalition built informal labour constituencies. Um, but we've got lots to talk about the Seagray report, of course, latest revelations in the Sunday papers about another party, yet another party, not another one, as Brenda from Bristol would put it. Um, and just, I'm interested, obviously, what the title says, is Boris Johnson going to resign? No, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing if anyone's going to look past some of the previous videos and podcasts we've done, which is kind of along the lines of, Boris Johnson must be doomed now. It's all over for Boris Johnson. Um, it, it wasn't, as you can probably tell, he's still Prime Minister, despite everything. Uh, his death has been, his political death has been predicted over and over again. And yet, there he is, still Prime Minister of the country. So is he going to lead the Tories into the next election? Um, I think that's obviously still an interesting question. Um, he has defied uh, political gravity uh, over and over again. And other politicians would have fallen long ago for just one of the many things that Boris Johnson um, has been found guilty of. But there we have it. Right. So uh, if you're joining us live, do click on the YouTube link uh, if you can. It's just nice if you watch it on YouTube. Press like and subscribe um, and do leave comments. Uh, keep them, you know, you can you can be punchy. You can, you can, you know, ridicule my periods to a degree. But obviously... Try and be nice if you can, at least to each other. Otherwise, you'll get barred by the moderator. Um, but do join the discussion and uh, do subscribe. Right, let's bring in Sebastian Payne, who's who I was talking about, by the way, from the Financial Times, who, for those listening on the podcast, he's got a lovely, lovely bit greenery behind him. It's nice to have a bit of flora. Normally, people, as you can see, I look like I could just be like in a prison cell. Uh, but Sebastian is, or Seb, I don't want to keep calling you Sebastian. You are Seb. You can go Great. for Seb. That's fine. We'll go. It's a Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Nice and relaxed Sunday afternoon. How are you, Seb, firstly? How I'm very you? well, thanks, Owen. Very well. It's a lovely day here. We've got some sunshine and, yeah, papers have been fun today. <laughs> lots and lots of political stuff to get stuck into. There certainly is. Where should we begin? I think we'll start. Let's have a look. I think we'll start with. So the Sunday Times has this piece about it's the headline is muzzled question mark how senior officials fought to water down Sue Gray report uh, with a dogged refusal to accept the blame. Little luck. Boris Johnson succeeded in neutering Sue Gray's verdict on the number 10 parties. Now, as Adam Bienkov, he's a very good political journalist, says, the Times reports that Downing Street had access to drafts of Sue Gray's report in advance and intervened to get 
details of the ABBA party in Boris Johnson's flat removed. There's been a lot of talk about this so-called ABBA party um, in that neither the... This is off... Many people think this is probably like the most egregious example. This was after Dominic Cummings went, wasn't it? And they celebrated mm. allegedly... That's right. This November 2020. That's right. Good to have the date specific. So what, what are your thoughts? What what... What what do you think? What the what what's what's in this story that you think mm. you find striking? So the fact is, the Met Police have told us absolutely nothing about that. I mean, I think they've handled the whole thing completely atrociously, with no transparency, no clarity. We still have no idea who was fined, why were they fined, or for what particular events. And on that particular day, which I think was the thirteenth of November, twenty twenty, I think there were two events. One was the leaving party for Lee Kane, Boris Johnson's director of comms, and we saw pictures of that which were leaked to ITV and were in the Sue Gray report. There's also been reports of this so-called flat party, and there's a lot of conflicting stuff about this from both sides. But some people, potentially those more, more aligned, I think, with the Dominic Cummings side of the view, say that there was a party to celebrate his departure. They include music and all the rest of it. Um, other sources involved in this, because this whole thing's become a classic Westminster briefing war, say that, in fact, it was a work meeting and they were discussing how to deal with the fact that they just lost their director of strategy and the most important person within Downing Street. The crucial thing, though, is that the Met Police and Sue Gray have not dug into this party. Now, the thing to remember about Sue Gray Owen, and I think this is very important, is she's not independent. She's a civil servant. She works for the prime minister and he commissioned her to do the report. And I spoke to a former Tory cabinet minister who worked very closely with Sue Gray in the past. And this person said to me, Sue Gray and cabinet office inquiries will never do in a prime minister. And why? Because they don't see it as their job to do that. She's constitutionally separate to that. You know, if you wanted a proper independent inquiry into Partygate, you could have got a judge, you could have got a lord. There's the Inquiries Act, which is you set that out entirely separately. That's not what this was. This was asking someone within government to look at this. And that's why many people are frustrated, I think, by the outcome, because it could have been hampered. But it's very clear to know what this was about. So there's reports that were swilling around, I think it's in the Sunday Times today, where they talk more about this party and saying that it could be potentially investigated. And we should forget that we've gone through two party gate investigations. So we've had uh, the Met Police, which finished Operation Hillman a couple of weeks ago. We've had Sue Gray. But we've also got the Privileges Committee, which is to look about whether Boris Johnson knowingly misled the House of Commons. Um, and that work will kick off as soon as they come back from recess the week after next. Uh, and that committee will have the potential to call witnesses, to call evidence. And that's when we'll get to the bottom of whether there was a party in, in the flat, the so-called ABBA party, whether it was a work meeting, and who's got it right in this kind of weird briefing war that is still going on. Yeah, we'll come on to that in terms of the Sanders Committee, because this is actually in terms of the question mark about, you know, to quote the philosopher Taylor Swift, is he out of the woods? Is he out of the woods? Can't remember the next bit. Um, so we'll come on to that because this, this saga isn't over because I think many might think, well, the Sue Gray report, that's it. Whatever mm -hmm. happens now, he's escaped. But obviously there's still more to come. Yeah, this carry party we're talking about. So this is in the in the, uh, in the the Sunday Times again. Unseen text messages hint at Carrie Johnson's uh, second party in number 10. So a funny bit of detail here because Harry York at the Sunday Times, the FT political editor of the Sunday Times, she used a very specific term to refer to the friends according to the Sun. Uh, uh, sorry, what did she say? Yes, she used a very specific term to refer to the friends in the flat. She was already in the flat with at least two male friends. Well, Dan Hodges actually in his mail on Sunday column actually wrote about this earlier in the year. She, she said, 
I'm with the gays up in the flat. Can you come up? That's funny. I mean, that is very funny. What your, your, I mean, your text must have got missed in the post, Owen, when that <laughs> went out. No, what? Come on, I'm come on, Carrie. Um, yeah, didn't get invited. Uh, that we know of. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of this, this, this is quite interesting though because Dominic Cummings has always gone on about this, hasn't he? I mean, mm. he's gone on about he's got an interest in it because that's when he left and he had a big tussle with Carrie Johnson. There was a big power struggle with. Obviously, Carrie Johnson has an advantage because she is the partner of the Prime Minister. He lost. He, he He's aware of this party to celebrate his political demise, so he's zoned in on it. So, But this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because it is seemingly the most egregious example, and yet it, the Met has an, and Sue Gray mm. didn't investigate it as a consequence. So well, if it was, you know, if you take the, the, the Mr Cummings's view of this party and what his people have briefed out, as you said, that would be a very egregious breach because it was in uh, the private residence of the Prime Minister. Um, I mean, if you're playing ABBA to you and me, that's certainly a party, you know, party, yeah, you know, everyone would love going to an ABBA party. So it's quite hard to justify it on that sense. What we just don't know is the facts about it because what Sue, because don't forget from the very beginning, Sue Gray was setting out a clear um, narrative about all this because there's been so much briefing from sort of pro and anti Boris Johnson people. The key thing of her inquiry was to say, okay, this is what happened at what time backed up by photos and by witness statements and her 37 page report does that. But with regards to that, she didn't investigate and the Met didn't, as far as we know, really investigate that either. So if we're going to find out exactly was there ABBA, was there a party, or was it as, I guess, the other side of it, as which is just a work meeting, people talking about work may or may not with ABBA in the background. That's where the Privileges Committee will kind of go. But you're right that if the narrative that's out there was correct, that would obviously be pretty problematic for the PM. You cannot work listening to SOS by ABBA. It is physically impossible. Have you Everyone, tried? I, I, I haven't because it's, I know it's not a feasible scenario. It's, you know, I mean, we've all got our favourite ABBA songs. Um, SOS, I think, is up there with mine. You just can't do it. Um, in, so let's have a look at some of the details. I'm just quite interested in some of the details before we talk about the mood of the Tory mm. party generally. Um I mean, a lot of this is kind of like people might think, well, is this that important? But it's interesting. It's in the Sunday Times. So I'm just uh, Adam Bienkov pulled this out, um, which is uh, in the Sunday Times repeats. Uh, sorry, uh, says another example of lax discipline was that the 8.30 a.m. meeting of senior staff was moved at one point to 9 a.m. because Johnson kept being late. You had people coming in from miles away to be there by 7.30 a.m., but he couldn't be bothered to walk down two flights of stairs to get there on time, a source said. Suddenly Boris Johnson's relatable. It is also claimed that Martin Reynolds, the former principal private secretary, left after organising a bring-your-own-booze party, used to pretend Johnson was in meetings to cover for him while he was having an afternoon nap. It's the Prime Minister, everybody. I mean, what's your sense of kind of how Boris Johnson's work ethic um, as Prime Minister? Well, I think one context is worth putting into all this at this time as well. This was when the Prime Minister and his wife, I think, had just had their first son, uh, Wilfred, at that point. And I think people who are a bit more positive towards the PM than you would see in that, see in that particular, uh, in that particular reporting, would say that you know you've got a young child. Everyone knows what that is like. But I think it was. Matt Chorley at the Times, who reported quite a long time ago about the Prime Minister potentially taking afternoon naps when he was required. Um, 
I think it's an interesting thing about the role of PM now, and regardless of Boris Johnson privately, is the role just sort of too big in some respects that, you know, and they're obviously after this whole business, they've created the office for prime minister, which is meant to try and find a better, more formal structure around the PM. And essentially, they've split the cabinet office in two. Half it's gone over this new office for the PM, which is all the economic, domestic policy stuff. There's a new permanent secretary of number 10, Samantha Jones, sadly not from Sex and the City, but the other Samantha Jones, known much more widely in Whitehall, to try and provide a better structure around that. And it's funny because when Boris Johnson was mayor of London, um, he had a very clear structure around him, uh, first Sir Simon Milton and then um, Lord Eddie Lister, who were there to try and sort of give policy heft, shall we say, and do the details. Because I think even the Prime Minister's biggest supporters would not say he was like, you know, Theresa May, I think, used to get up at 5 a.m., do two hours of red boxes, then do the morning meetings, then go on with the day, and then meetings, 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 and then do more red boxes, and then go back to it. Like, there is so much to do. It never kind of really ends. And I think when you've got a PM who's like Boris Johnson, who focuses on the bigger pictures, he would put it, the narratives, that kind of stuff, the detail is just not going to be there for him. And I think that's why they've tried to create this new structure. Um, I mean, I somehow doubt he's actually just falling asleep on his desk within Downing Street. I feel like that that would be sort of quite unrealistic. But I mean, who among us has not maybe had a heavy night, um, may or may not, you know, and had a bit of a nap. But yeah, it does say, it is, it is something interesting that this whole narrative has developed on people who've worked with him, who's just like, he's not putting the hours, but... I don't kind of see how you couldn't because there's just so much to do in that job in terms of the red boxes. And this is, of course, Dominic Cummings' big criticism. He's always said he wasn't judicious with the red boxes. But again, I don't know how you could not be because the British state doesn't function if you're not signing off security warrants, economic papers, all that kind of stuff. What would you say the mood amongst Tory MPs is? I mean, it's not a homogenous block, obviously. There are different factions yeah. within the Tories. They're pointing in different directions. But what's the general lay of the land, do you think, with regards it's to... It's really music? an odd one, Owen, at the moment, because, first of all, if you were just an outside person looking at it, people who sort of, like, follow your journalism, you'd be like, this is it. It's going to happen, drip by drip. There's letters every single day. You look at the front page of The Observer, and you've got Ian Duncan Smith, who's not exactly on the left, the Tory party saying we've got this big ideological vacuum you've got. But then most of the people who publicly come out and put letters, they're exactly who you would expect. So like Sir Bob Neill, a uh, London MP who's again been a long-time critic of Boris Johnson. Jeremy Hunt, as we know from the Mail on Sunday, is uh, on manoeuvres with his people doing secret dinners at pubs in Westminster to talk about transport policy, apparently, which is, uh, I think, one up from technology lessons. And when you look at that kind of whole picture, stuff is moving, but the critical mass is like the centre of the Tory party, which is kind of people who are pro-Brexit, quite moderate in their views, privately, that they're really fed up, like really, really fed up. But what they're not doing is moving it over the line because their calculation at the moment still is, do you want a slightly tarnished Boris Johnson who his allies will say to these kind of wavering MPs, look, Boris has never lost a national election. He's won London twice, the EU referendum, general election. Every other contender has never fought a national election before as a leading figure. And um, because all the people from the company, they're all sort of out the front line. Many of them have left Parliament. So for those people, the calculation is, do you want sort of, you know, slightly tarnished Boris or do you want uh, someone totally untested? That's why they're not really shifting in big numbers at the moment. Um, the key test is going to be these by-elections coming up, right? So we've got the Wakefield by-election uh, and the Tiverton-Homerton by-election 
Uh, Wakefield will almost certainly go. I mean, like it would take a miracle for the Tories to win that. And the expectation of management is well underway. And uh, despite, you know, like um, the guy the Tories have chosen up there, I actually interviewed in my book, Nadim Ahmed, who is the um, Conservative leader of Wakefield Council. And I actually thought he was a lot more impressive than Imran Ahmed Khan, um, who is the officer of the Tory MP, who's now uh, gone to prison for um, child sexual abuse. Um, but the Labour's obviously had a bit of um, backwards and forwards on their selection as well. Where's the person local or what have you? So if it was being fought on like who's the best local candidate, mm-hmm. the Tories would be in the good shot, I think. But actually, it's going to be about wider issues. It's going to be about people just being very annoyed with Boris Johnson. On Tiverton and Homerton, like the Lib Dems are throwing, you know, 15 kitchen sinks at that by-election because... It's it's always been a Tory safe seat, but it's a part of the world where they're traditionally very strong. So if the Tories lose both of those, plus this general unhappiness, where does that leave you? Like, And that's when I think you could get over that crucial 54 marker when that kind of moderate centre ground the Tory party goes, you know what, we're fed up. There's real damage being sustained to the party right now. Because at the moment, that's not quite at that crucial level. And of course, the PM's quite lucky that it's the Jubilee now. So Westminster's in recess. Everyone's off celebrating 70 years of the Queen, not thinking about politics. But as I said, when they come back from recess, it's straight back into it with those by-elections. With we're talking about, for example, the the red wall. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll mention your book properly in, in, a, in a second. Exactly. But in, well, in fact, I'll mention it now just so we're aware. Seb has written this very, very fascinating book called "Broken Heartlands: A Journey Through Labour's Lost England." The paperback version will be out on June the twenty third with a new chapter on the so called blue wall, which is um, the kind of southern seats which the Liberal Democrats might have a kind of. Or, or looking or angling for it's where Labour's not really a massive, often contention. They're not always. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the red wall, so these are the seats, obviously, in often smaller towns in mostly northern England. But you could, I suppose, you can include Wales. But let's talk about, you know, that's where you focused on and where people mostly mm. speak about. A lot of those Tory MPs, their their view was, well, actually, Boris Johnson has a unique cut through with this new voter coalition in these mm. seats. And they're not confident enough that another Tory leader like, well, I mean, I mean, Rishi Sunak's star has exploded quite spectacularly. But um, Liz Truss, I suppose, is another one. They're just not confident that they can cut through. I'll come on to Jamie Hunt. You mentioned him because I'm interested in that. Mm. But, so what do you think the calculation is with them now? Do you th- because, you know, if we look at Boris Johnson's ratings, they are very, very bad. Like, they're actually quite spectacularly bad. It is true when Partygate fades from the headlines, they do actually go up. I mean, maybe part of the Ukraine war had something to do with that. Um, but when... So we'll see what happens if Partygate goes out, the new headlines for Aleph, if he can recover. But they are very bad, and a lot of... Um, is it James Johnson? Is he the pollster? That's right, yeah. Theresa May's pollster, yeah. Right, so he was Theresa May's pollster. And he, you know, his big shtick is, look, he's really toxic now. Um, if you do focus groups of, particular, you know, red wall voters, mm. they're really angrily contemptuous towards the prime minister in a way yeah. that it's hard to see how he can recover. So I'm interested, what do you think those Tory MPs are thinking now? Do you think they're thinking, well, actually, he does have this unique cut through. He's a big campaigner in a way the others aren't or are they thinking actually these voters actually really actually are quite angry with them now they're not going to change their minds so it's a really interesting question this and chris curtis the poster from opinion he's um argued that actually the biggest tory losses have been uh, in, in in support for the pm have actually been in the red war not in the southern sort of blue war kind of places 
So my view on this, which I wrote about in, in Broken Heartlands and articles for the FT, is that essentially these places had been structurally and economically trending away from labour for quite some time as they've gone through deindustrialization. their economies have become more atomized, people's lives have become uh, more individualistic, and those kind of bonds that brought them to the labour movement. So whether it's, you know, trade unions, uh, collectivised communities, as I called them in the book, where people, you know, live together, socialise together, work together, they've been broken down since Thatcherism, basically. Um, and so bit by bit, those intrinsic bonds have disappeared. And when you came to the 2019 election, the combination of the Brexit question, they really wanted to get Brexit done, plus the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn in those seats, like he was pretty unpopular in those Red Wall seats, pushed those voters over the line. But that didn't make them natural Tories. It basically meant that, okay, we're fed up with Labour, UKIP's gone, we're not interested in the Brexit party, the Lib Dems are nowhere in these places. So we're going to give you a try. We're going to trust the Tories and see what's going to happen. And crucially, they were not trusting Theresa May's Tories or David Cameron's. They were trusting Boris Johnson's new shiny Tories, which in every way felt different to where the party was before. You know, its language was different. Its policies were very different. There was no talk about kind of cuts or austerity. It was spending all this money, you know, putting 20,000 police officers, which I think was exactly the amount the Conservatives cut after the 2010 election, for example. But that whole narrative was very, very different. And those, and on the steps outside of Downing Street and the morning after the election, Boris Johnson said to those voters, you've put your trust in me. I'm going to repay that trust. Now, the question is, by the time we get to the next election, which, by the way, th there is not going to be an early election. Like, if you're very high up in the Tory party or planning, it, you know, obviously, apart from the fact, as you mentioned, the polls and it would be complete madness to do it. Like, they want as much time as possible for both getting as far away from the pandemic and um, inflation, because if you look at like likes of Andy Haldane, the head of the RSA and the Bank of England's former chief economist, he reckons inflation is not going to trend downwards until the end of 23. So again, you want to push that really as far as you can to get away from high inflation. So all that together means in the calculation of toy strategists, you've got from this point, really this month, two years until the next election. So you've got to do the best with the economy, but you've also just got to try and build lots of stuff because that's fundamentally what the levelling up agenda was about. So for those Red War Tory MPs, you're thinking, okay, number one, we need to get building stuff. And the fact is they just haven't done enough on that. Like, you know, and that part of that's the pandemic, but voters won't give that as an excuse to be like, you promised me better hospitals, better roads, better infrastructure. Where is it? So, and the fear among many Red War Tories is if another leader came, particularly someone like... Jeremy Hunt, who's more um, Southern facing, he won't have an interest in building hospitals in the North because that's not his Toryism. His Toryism is much more about cutting taxes, a smaller efficient state, not Boris Johnson's Toryism, which is much more about bigger and spending. So their concern is the ideological direction of the party would shift, plus that point about the unique appeal. And time and time again, you know, I interviewed about 150 people and traveled 6,000 miles to the book. People would just say to me, you know, Boris, he's the guy you want to have a pipe mate, you want to go to the pub with. And he's got a populist appeal in those places. And there's just no one out of any of the contenders who I think gets anywhere near that. So for those MPs, they're still thinking Boris, with his tarnished ratings, is better the alternative. And they hope, or I guess they're, they're, they're desperate that he can pull that back. And if he can, then they're vindicated. If he can't, they all lose their seats. It's interesting, a, a poll today suggests in terms of active Tory members, 40% want Boris Johnson to resign compared to 53% to stay. Which was the Con Home poll, wasn't it? That's right, which is exactly, which is much tougher 
for Boris Johnson than Tory voters. Only 27% of Tory voters think he should resign, 63% thinks he could stay. Well, that's interesting. Why do you think there's such a big divergence? Why are active Tory members more likely, significantly more likely, to want Boris Johnson to resign? I mean, it's pretty, it's not level, but there's 40% a lot. It is, and it's also because they do these polls every month, and it's a significant mark upwards since the Sue Gray report came out in that latest polling you mentioned. So the events of this week, you know, many members of the public are far more concerned about trying to fill their cars and buy food than what's going on in Westminster. But for Tory party members, I think this this does matter to them. And I think it's for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, and um, they like when you look at ministers who do well in Tory poll ratings, it's ministers who are perceived to be doing something. So you can have your critique of Liz Truss's trade deals when she was international development secretary, but from the Tory member perspective, she was getting out and doing stuff. That's what they like. Ben Wallace, they like because he's getting out and doing stuff with regards to Ukraine. Boris Johnson, I mean, he's not doing anything right now. He's just been on the back foot trying to respond to the party gates council. I think that's part of it. The second part of it is, um, in a weird way, they'll be very concerned about the ideological direction of where the party is going. That's the other thing you see in the Sunday papers today, that, you know, lots of MPs are saying, you know, Dan Hannan, the uh, uh, Lord Hannan, I should say, former Conservative MEP, you know, he's written a whole column in the Sunday Telegraph going on about, you know, where is this Conservative government? And if you're that kind of Jeremy Hunt, George Osborne traditional style of Tory, you look at this government, you're saying, okay, you've just spent £22 billion. You've got this whole round about whether you've misled Parliament. You're not very happy with the situation. That's why the ratings have tanked. And I think there will be a big push. You know, we've got Operation Big Dog, as it's called, the delightful name to try and save the Prime Minister. But then there's also, I think there will no doubt be the 15th Operation Red Meat over the next month, where you can expect to see a whole load of kind of hardcore conservative announcements to try and calm down those fears. That's why I think Tory members are not very happy at the moment. If Boris Johnson wanted to fix that, he's going to do some more conservative things, throw some red meat, uh, and try and get on with some stuff. Because Partygate's been going on, what, six months now, I guess, since yeah. people career started breaking um, those stories in December 2020. And it's, it's kind of overshadowed the government's capacity to do anything. Every time a minister goes on TV, it's just Partygate, Partygate. So they're desperate to move on. But as we were saying earlier, it's not going to move on. So we've still got this parliamentary investigation. And I guarantee you we'll still be talking about this um, in the autumn at party conference season. So just just quickly on on just I want to ask you about Labour actually just finally before I let you go. But just in terms of um, do you think if you're a betting man, do you think Boris Johnson is going to survive and lead the Conservatives into the next election? We've obviously got the committee later in the year, so this isn't dead as you said. And if not, if he doesn't, uh, what do you, is Jeremy Hunt? likely to win. I mean, he was obviously someone who supported Remain, but so did Liz Truss, and they've both reinvented themselves as Brexiteers. Um, he's someone, obviously, more conventionally on the right economically. So, yeah, do, will he survive? And and if he didn't, hypothetically, what, what do you I think, think about Jeremy Hunt's prospects? I think it's more likely than not he survived. But it is interesting, because when the Sue Gray report came out, you know, everyone was like, it's quite muted. It's not going for the PM personally. It was going to be much worse. But then since then, 
the mood has definitely kind of soured amongst, I think, Tory MPs. And I think it's not just the 24 who publicly called for him to go, that con home poll. The feeling just is maybe a bit more damaging than I thought it would be. So the odds are short, but I'd say it's more likely than not at this stage because there's no obvious alternative. If there was a ready-made print across the water, because with Theresa May, if she went, you had Boris Johnson there. You also had Michael Gove there. Uh, Michael Gove, I think, will almost certainly not run for the leadership again next time. So there's not really a ready-made alternative. So I feel it's more likely than not. But the other thing we should say is, you know, one that we've learned is Boris Johnson is quite a chaotic prime minister. You might put it in slightly harsher words than that. Um, but, you know, Conservative MPs, you know, one said to me, there's going to be another gate. You know, we've had wallpaper gate, party gate, um, there's going to be something else before the next election. And I think that sort of plays on the minds of some MPs as well, being like, in fact, actually, is there just going to be another scandal? And if that happens like this time next year, then that's really close to an election. Who's the who's the next? Like, I mean, Jeremy Hunt is doing the most organising. If you remember when Michael Portillo was running for the leadership um, um, in the in the early noughties, he was installing the telephone lines. Was the famous phrase. And um, I guess the equivalent now is WhatsApp groups. And I mean, there are so many of them of outrider groups of Tory MPs organising, and their critiques are also. If you look at what they say in public, they're clearly organised. There's clearly an operation going on there, but. I would be very surprised if it's Jeremy Hunt because of that point about where the, 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 the geographical gravity of the Tory party now is. I think they're much more likely to go from someone who is possibly even less tested than Jeremy Hunt, but has got a different appeal. And the one who I think is the most interesting out of all the potential contenders is Nadim Zahawi, the education secretary. Because if you're a Tory um, activist, think about where he gives. He's got a businessman, successful founder of YouGov, um, very, um, obviously a multimillionaire, um, which obviously which he soon out brings complications in terms of his support. But uh, backstory is, is very strong. Came for the feed Saddam Hussein in the 1970s, came here with nothing, built up his political career gradually. He's seen as quite a reliable media performer. He's won plaudits from, from many people for the vaccine rights. So I think he's the kind of person who could be very interesting. But my gut feeling is probably not going to be a contest this side of the next election. Just finally, I'm interested in what the Tory perspective is on Labour's, I suppose, offering, uh, or or maybe like oh, what? Well, this is what I was going to say. Yeah, so I've got. To, in fact, I'll just play a little clip shortly, just to just to flesh that one out. Because Labour's big stick for a while was the windfall tax, um, and I would say that they did pressure the Tories into doing windfall tax. Definitely, definitely. What I don't think would have happened if Labour exactly. hadn't pressured. But then the Tories did a more ambitious version, which is a bit <laughs> embarrassing. But now, I suppose. You know, Rachel Reeves is like, that shows we're winning the battle of ideas. But I think the problem with that is what what are you said? What is the battle of ideas that's been waged by Labour there? Because are you saying that is the Labour, you know, we do want a big active state because they're not making a career here in statement. So let's just hear what Annalise Dodds, who's the Labour Party chair and is in charge of the policy review for the Labour Party, said on Sky News. Fine. I mean, your head of Labour's policy review that was launched in June 2021, so it's been running for a year now, we're currently facing uh, an absolute cost of living crisis, inflation at a 40-year high, potentially the biggest drop in living standards since records began. What is the single transformative idea that you've come up with in this year-long policy review? Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, we've come up with many, many ideas. If people are particularly interested, they can look at our reports on the Labour website. And I have to say... I mean, it doesn't really grab the attention, does it, to say go to labourparty.org to try and find out exactly uh, uh, what what we stand for in this day and age. It's like it's 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 a real problem for Labour because obviously, and I know you've written extensively about this, Owen, is that like... Kistan was elected on a particular platform and that platform is being jettisoned. It's actually been salami sliced bit by bit that they've kind of moving away from where, where the party was in 2019 and 2020. But they've not quite got a vision of where they're going to and they don't want to set up too much in advance because if Labour had said, we're going to do a windfall tax the next election, the Tories do it. Oh, now what do we do? Well, you, you get clips sort of like sadly like that one you just had with Annalise Dodds there where you can't really say anything. I think by the end of this year, if Labour doesn't really have some big ideas, and you can obviously criticise the Corbyn years for many things, but it had big ideas, very bold ideas that captured the imagination of, I mean, yourself and other many left-wing activists. At the moment, Keir Starmer's main pitch seems to be we would be a more competent version of the guys who are there. You know, we're going to still do the win for tax. We're still spending this kind of money. Labour backed all the government's COVID policies. And fundamentally, Labour seems to back the government's levelling up agenda as well. So I just at the moment, I think that is a real, real challenge. And if, you know, I think in some ways Labour wants to sit back and let the Tories eat themselves, which obviously they're doing quite a good job of at the moment in terms of letters and leadership contests. But if you look at, like you mentioned James Johnson, you look at his focus groups on Times Radio, time and time again, the, ra- the reason Labour is doing well is not because of Keir Starmer doing well, it's because of the Tories um, just being in a complete mess. And the thing Labour has to watch is if they suddenly come up, if, if the Tories sort of rebound, if they, if they manage to draw a line under this and get to a better place, then I imagine Labour's polling lead will probably collapse relatively quickly uh, and it'll go back to where it was. And then people will be saying, well, we're going to lose the next election again. So I think the narrative could switch quite quickly. And for the red wall place I went to, you know, what these people want is, and I think one of the most interesting things about where Labour could be is the politics of securitisation, which Claire Ainsley, who's Keir Starmer Chief of Staff, has written about in her book, The New Working Class, that, you know, those traditional community structures people had, you know, trade unions, uh, you know, very strong employment rights, um, you know, community facilities, they, a lot of those have gone over the past 40 years. And what Labour could replace that with is saying, you know, we want to provide you economic security by dealing with zero hours contracts and, uh, uh, and, and, and bad bosses. We could provide environmental security with um, 
dealing with climate change, national security in terms of being tough and draping themselves in the flag, which again, we know Kiyostama likes to do. So there is like a potential narrative there that I think is interesting, but for whatever reason, at the moment, Labour just seems to want to just be sort of prodding the Tory bear than actually doing something itself. Seb, I've taken so much of your time, which I'm very, very grateful for, but it's been absolutely fascinating, really, really thoughtful, and obviously full of actual insight. Which uh, you know, sort of, well, exactly. And and the efforts have, have, have been hugely rewarding. But um, Seb's book, which, as he's already mentioned, Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England. So the paperback version comes out on June the 23rd. Yeah, June the That's 23rd. That's right, yeah. You should all rush out and get it. And there's a big new chapter, which I spent uh, in a month in Ishan Walton, Don Rabsey, to look at the flip side of the kind of realignment of 2019. And is he in trouble there? And the answer is a resounding yes. But you have to buy yeah. the book to find out why. The, ooh, the Lib Dems are yapping at his heels. We'll see. Um, Seb, honestly, it's been such an honour. So thank you so, so much for joining us. And I will speak to you soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Owen. See you soon. Um, great stuff. Really, really fascinating stuff. Don't go yet, by the way, because uh, I'm going to just talk. We, do, we mentioned Labour there. Um, and I suppose the issue about Labour's vision. Now, Keir Starmer, let's, have, let's just have, have a little look at what happened, or the kind of revelation, if you like, on, on Friday, which was Paul War, who I'd say is someone who the Labour leadership are very favourable towards. Um, he's not the I. Um, he said that Labour's likely to ditch Jeremy Corbyn's 2019 pledge to hike income tax on those earning more than £80,000. Parties looking at more creative ways of making the rich pay more. I should say that's not just 2019. I think 2019 manifesto obviously is associated now with an 80-seat Tory majority. I get that. It was also in the 2017 manifesto. Um, because the 2019 manifesto, I think a lot of people even, I think, around Jeremy Corbyn believed that that manifesto was just excessively policy heavy because the Labour leadership were desperately at the time trying to shift the conversation away from Brexit, which they succeeded in doing in 2017. But by 2019, the country was so polarised, it just wasn't a runner at all. Um, but anyway, that's why they threw so many policies at it. So it's even amongst many of the people around Corbyn's team, they kind of think, well, the 2019 manifesto had a lot. It was noisy. The 2017 manifesto, on the other hand, uh, was, um, you know, described by Keir Starmer as the foundational document of the Labour Party in the leadership contest. In fact, let's just be very clear, because Keir Starmer's going back on this commitment to income taxes. Forget about the 2019 manifesto. It was in his leadership campaign. So it was pledge number one. He did 10 pledges. Now, I think some people don't understand, I don't want to be patronising here, but I think some of Gear Starmer's most militant supporters don't understand what pledge means. The definition of pledge is a solemn promise or undertaking. Uh, pledge number one, economic justice, increase income tax for the top 5% of earners, reverse the Tories' cuts in corporation tax, and clamp down on tax avoidance, particularly of large corporations. No stepping back from our core principles. His tweets look about it. Keir Starmer in the leadership campaign. Increase income tax for the top 5% of earners, reverse the Tories' cuts in corporation tax, and clamp down on tax avoidance, particularly of large corporations. No stepping back from our core principles. Well... You see, the thing is, what he's done there is made a series of pledges, cast iron commitments. And in fact, I'll just, just be clear, during the leadership contest, I didn't, didn't vote for Keir Starmer, but nonetheless, for example, I remember this whole 
when he made this commitment. And I was interested to know, is this definitely for real? No chance of any U-turn. And one of Keir Starmer's advisors rang me and said, this is absolutely cast iron, 100% income tax going up for the top 5% of earners. Absolutely. I mean, not engraved in the stone because Ed Miliband did that and it didn't go down well, Ed Stone. Um, so it it was a it was a solemn commitment. Now, here's the thing. Now, I raised this when I mentioned this on Twitter because Keir Starmer's leadership campaign was the most dishonest in British democratic history. Now, people say, oh, oh what about Boris Johnson? He's a liar. Boris Johnson lies as easily as he breathes. I mean, he's. I don't think anyone disputes that deception and dishonesty is absolutely woven into the fundamental character and person of Boris Johnson. Um, and, and I think their, their dishonesty is kind of different because Boris Johnson has this kind of self-serving, how am I going to get myself out of this one kind of dishonesty? Like, you know, he was sacked by his party leader for lying about an affair, for example, that kind of thing. I don't think anyone could look back at Boris Johnson's leadership campaign as it was dishonest. Like, if he was as dishonest as leadership campaign as Keir Starmer, we'd now be rejoining the European Union. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, his whole shtick in the leadership election was get Brexit done. Uh, you know, they got their hard Brexit done, which I think is actually a very damaging Brexit deal for the country. Um, you know, I mean, the fundamental... You could say the one promise they did break was not to hike national insurance. So they did break that. That was a general election commitment. The overall thrust, you know, the, in general, they just stuck to what they said they were going to do, which is not, in my opinion, good <laughs> for the country or good for millions of people. Keir Starmer made all these pledges, including pledge number one, increase income tax on the top 5%, which they're now planning to abandon. Things like party unity and don't, I mean, let's not just, let's not even bother indulging that one. I, I just think the issue is, and I, I've said this before, and, I, and I'm going to stick by it. That kind of dishonesty, that wanton dishonesty, brazen dishonesty, it corrodes democracy. Because what happens is, if politicians keep saying things which they promise to do, and then they don't do them, and actually they just do the opposite, if you can't trust a politician to do what they say, then why would you engage in the democratic process? I mean, democracy just becomes a potluck. <laughs> You can vote for someone, you have literally no idea what they're going to do. They just make a promise and then they just do something completely different. And if you knock on doors, I've knocked on thousands of doors in my life, one of the most cliched things voters say is, oh, politicians say one thing and they do another. Politicians lie. And it is, actually, it's bad for the left, that, because if you want, um, in politics, you know, kind of bold ideas and um, if you want them to exist in politics, if voters don't have faith in politicians to deliver or abide by their promises then the bigger the promise the more cynical they're likely to be aren't they so it's actually really it's it's bad for democracy it's bad for the left now i get yelled at a lot by starmer supporters starmer and i'm gonna dis, i'm gonna distinguish between them because there are just starmer supporters who think look okay i know he's not perfect but he's the labor leader we need to get rid of the tories i get all that i'm a labor voter i've voted labor all my life some people find that ridiculous but that's that's who I am. I'm a Labour sort of guy. There are others who are just cult-like in their attitude. They just literally just go over twi on Twitter and behave in the way that Corbyn supporters were always caricatured as, and they would like front-page news stories about abuse from the toys. They just send 
just prolific abuse. I'm not doing this as a violin, by the way. I'm just, it's the double standard that annoy me, not being yelled at by, essentially, it's like being savaged by a waitrose queue in Tunbridge Wells when the organic chutneys run out. I've said that before and someone pointed out there isn't a proper waitrose in Tunbridge Wells, but you get the gist. Um, but, you know, they get F off and join the Tories. I get all that, which is what Corbyn supporters always accused of. I, like, if you don't care, if you only go on about Boris Johnson's dishonesty and you ignore Keir Starmer's dishonesty, you don't care about dishonesty. You, you just don't. Like, you care about dishonesty if you're the victim of it. You care about dishonesty if it's a politician you don't like, if it's a politician you don't support. But if it's your guy being dishonest, you don't care. The means, the, the, the ends justifies the means. Anything goes. He can he can lie through his back teeth. And look, the reality is, the reason why a big song and dance isn't made about this is the victims of Keir Starmer's dishonesty were people on the left and ordinary Labour Party members. And they're not regarded as legitimate political actors. Like, it seems a good thing to dupe the left, to, to do anything you can to marginalise and ostracise the left and to defeat the left. So if you, as far as the newspapers are concerned, media outlets in this country, generally, their view is, be as dishonest as you like, if the left are on the receiving end, obviously, they're not legitimate political actors, and we want them to be defeated, and uh, if Keir Starmer wants to do that, then good. Um, you know, Richard Tice, the Brexit party leader, or Reform Party, whatever they're called now, uh, you know, when when he said, when, you know, there was, Keir Starmer was one on the leadership, one of their big purges and attacks on the left, he was like, great, good, Keir Starmer's doing a good thing, the left needs to be marginalising British politics. Great to have the Brexit party cheering you on as you take on the left. It is astonishing how this political heist has been able to unfold. Um, because as I've said, no leadership campaign in modern democratic history has been so dishonest. Blair didn't, Blair's leadership pitch wasn't dishonest. He didn't say he was going to get rid of Clause 4, which is what he did, but you'd have to be pretty thick, I'm afraid, to have voted for Tony Blair and not realise the exact political direction he was going to embark on. He made that clear in the leadership election in 1994. Um, you know, it wasn't dishonest. You know, whatever people think about Jeremy Corbyn, you can talk about his faults all you like, obviously abided by his leadership election commitments. This guy has done the exact opposite. And it is, as I've said, it's just very, very, very bad for democracy. So people go, oh, you attack it. Oh, you're just helping the Tories. Why do you join the Tories, Owen? Well, I'm not going to join the Tories because I'm a lifelong democratic socialist. And I, I, you know, when it comes to, you know, it's not many Tories attacking Keir Starmer for, uh, for not wanting to tax the rich. I mean, that's just, it's Keir Starmer shifting towards the conservative position. That's what I'm objecting to. I'm objecting to... Uh, the lack of of a clear offer, which is distinct from that of the Conservatives. That's my problem with what Labour uh, are going for. Instead, they made their dividing lines honesty, which is hilarious because obviously Keir Starmer is serially dishonest, but knows he can get away with it because the media don't care about lying through your back teeth to Labour Party members on the left. Um, and, you know, again, I am an independent political commentator. My job is to just say what I think and... Uh, I'm not a press officer for the Labour Party. I don't work for the Labour Party. I have to just say what I actually think. And what I think is a very inarguable fact, which is Labour's current leader said one thing to get elected as leader of the party and has done something completely different. And if your view is, well, politics is a football team, so I'll just blindly get out my pom-pom balls and cheer on whoever is Labour leader uh, as long as he's generally kind of my brand of politics, because I think often the brand of kind of centrist he supports Keir Starmer 
It's not substance for them that matters. Politics is a vibe. It's a general gist. They don't really care about policies. They want they 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 what they most object to with Boris Johnson is that he, they seem as indecent and embarrassing and uncouth, and they just want this kind of mythical age of politics where things are kind of nice and stable and not embarrassing to come back. That was what a lot of Joe Biden supporters wanted, incidentally. Um, politics to become boring um, rather than just, oh, no, Trump's done another tirade on Twitter and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, politics has not become boring in, in the United States. Far from it. It's a very polarized and divided nation. And Joe Biden is doing, I'm afraid, very badly in the in the polling, particularly, it has to be said, amongst younger people. Um, so if that's people's solution, then I just think, look over the Atlantic. I want the Tories out. I think it's difficult to um, emphasize my almost the, the contempt for the Tories woven into my DNA. Uh, but um, if you think that it is in any way justifiable to ignore this serial dishonesty, even if you support Kostama's direction and say nothing about it and think that's fine, then as I've said, you don't care about honesty in politics. You don't care about integrity in politics. And fundamentally, you don't care about democracy. Now, the final thing I want to talk about, I mean, these are often two things I end with because uh, this is the burning skip that we currently live in. Now, the Labour MP, um, Stella Creasy, now I'm going to talk about this just, just briefly because it's just so grim and gruesome. Stella Creasy uh, is a Labour MP who doesn't have my politics generally, I have, to, I have to say. She comes from what I would say is the kind of the right, uh, of the Labour Party in, in lots of ways. I mean, she probably wouldn't like me saying that, but um, I think that's still justifiable. Um, she 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 was interviewed um, for the Telegraph, and she was interviewed about her experiences where she was threatened with gang rape at university. So this is how they are. This is how the interview went. We are here to talk about horrific experience when she was threatened with gang rape at university, but. As with all conversations with politicians these days, particularly Labour politicians, any discussion about women quickly turns to their struggle to define the term in the first place. Well, sorry, who made the discussion go that way? I don't think that was Stella Creasy, was it? It wasn't, was it, Camilla, who wrote this article, this interview? Many of her colleagues have notably declined to even try. Surely as a fellow feminist, she and JK Rowling aren't too far apart on the issue. No, I don't agree with her, and I'm told I'm a bad feminist because I take a different view, she reveals. Now, what on earth is a interview which is about a woman who talking about how she was threatened with gang rape at university it's been segued again into let's make this all about trans people one of the most marginalized besieged minorities in britain you know and, and it was written in the interview in a way of kind of like oh it just well as these discussions often do because the interviewer decided to make it about trans people fine now what happened there is trans people um obviously we have a whole kind of focus again on trans people getting you know piled on on twitter but stella creasy got piled in on on twitter on social media all day so she does an interview about being threatened with gang rape at university and then the interview is made to focus on trans people again and then she gets piled on on twitter by people who say we're defending women we're defending women by piling on a woman for daring to support trans people some she shared some of the emails um trans women that she got off the back of it trans women are not females and never will be you stupid 
uh, the C word, which I'm not, I'm not going to say for obvious reasons. Uh, another one, which you say, you, you, my dear, will burn in hell. Now, we often have this debate talking about how abusive supporters of trans rights are. Um, now, you know, the late Dawn Foster spoke about her own, uh, how she was threatened with, uh, with, with rape. She got threatened. She got ra- she got rape threats. This was covered at the time. Pink News covered it. Um, obviously, I knew Dawn. I was friends with her. She died last year. Um, she was a very passionate supporter of trans rights as a cis woman. Natasha Devon, an LBC uh, journalist uh, who also supports trans rights, uh, she wrote, as someone who supports trans rights, she said she'd been threatened with um, with rape threats as well. Now. I think we need a conversation at some point about how often it's actually cis women who the polling shows support trans rights more than men by a big margin, by the way. Every poll shows that. They're the ones often being hounded on Twitter. Yeah, sure, cis gay men and bisexual men, hi, who stand by our trans siblings, people in our own space, our own community. That also happens to us. But actually, it's often, and I'm not trying to distract here from obviously trans people get the the worst and most severe and horrific abuse. But it's striking that those who say we're defending women, women are being silenced, then pile on any woman with the temerity uh, to support trans rights and to support trans people. I think it's absolutely um, astonishing. You've got this from Dawn Foster here. Journalist Dawn Foster threatened with rape simply for being a trans ally, showing how vile transphobes truly are. Now, in Australia, we've just had this election um, in which the right-wing party lost their Tories. Now, they actually used in that election, they went in on trans rights in the way that we're seeing the Tories and their allies currently trying to do at the moment. But actually, it didn't work for them. I mean, here's an article, here's a headline here. Coalition lost, coalition, of course, being the, the right in Australia. The transphobe thing was an absolute disaster. So it actually didn't work for them. They went in hard trying to monster and demonize trans people in, in an effort to to hammer the conservatives, uh, sorry, to hammer the Labour Party in Australia. Um, I mean, again, this is just such a dark moment and era for trans people who obviously suffer huge amounts of abuse, hate crimes towards trans people uh, quadrupled in a few years. Um, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of things like. The polling shows being scared to use a toilet in terms of being physically or verbally abused at work in 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 schools and universities i mean you know it, it gets even worse because in that whole atmosphere the conservatives are doing everything they can to fight a so-called culture war which is essentially stigmatizing minorities and tapping into bigotry about perceived minorities so suella breverman who is the attorney general spoke about how did a whole interview about how schools shouldn't affirm um, trans people, young trans people in schools, and should encourage them, and, and, and teachers and so on should not kowtow to them uh, in terms of using their preferred pronouns or letting them use the toilets which actually meet the gender they identify with. I mean, th- this is what we're heading towards, clearly, is Section 28. Section 28 was introduced in the 1980s during the then moral panic about gay people, the idea then was that gay people tended to disproportionately be sexual predators who preyed on children and wanted to brainwash children. They wanted to kind of, um, you know, exploit vulnerable young people and turn them gay. And that's why the so-called promotion of homosexuality was banned in schools. That's what Section 28 did. 
um, because it was countering to that whole moral panic, the idea that people turn gay because they're told to be gay, um, which is obviously ludicrous because why are people like me gay growing up in a straight society uh, where the norm is to be straight? Um, now, this is, I think, a really important point because obviously the right have embraced this and they're going for this hard. They're using trans rights and their, the stigma attached to trans people in order to um, cause chaos for the Labour Party and anyone who's generally left of centre. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they did with... That's why they did. That's why they went for gay people in the 1980s. They knew at the time, actually, social attitudes towards gay people were way worse um, than they are towards trans people today. The polling does not show massive hostility to trans people. It did the polling did show massive hostility towards gay people? I'm afraid to say in the 1980s. Um, by 1987, only 11 percent of people said that um, same-sex relations were always fi fine. It's a tiny minority. Things changed quite dramatically. Um, but nonetheless, that's what they're trying to do. But there are those who call themselves progressives and feminists, uh, who are not representative of progressives and feminists, who have paved the foundations for a moral panic which threatens to consume uh, the country in almost hysteria and pay, lay the foundations for a new Section 28 and to make life completely intolerable to trans people. And to those people, I say, shame, shame, shame on you. How dare you? How dare? How Do you not have any shame or any sense of what you've done to some of those stigmatized people in the country? Every day, my direct messages, full of messages from trans people, many of them people who are younger trans people, who are scared, who are terrified, who don't think they have a future in this country because every day they open social media or they see the papers or they see these newspapers or they see these media interviews with a gotchas um, about genitalia. I mean, what on earth is happening to this country where we have these national debates about people's genitals on broadcast interviews? And they see all that and they feel scared and upset and distressed. And the consequences of that are absolutely horrifying and i just think people have to realize that the lack of humanity the lack of humanity and don't say this is about protecting women when you're hounding women like stella creasy on social media and you know all those women politicians like angela rayner or dawn butler uh, you know commentators people like ash starker or ellie may o'hagan uh, the late dawn foster natasha devon Women who stand up and support trans people, and they're the ones who are often the most monstered and the most attacked, protecting women and 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 speaking up for women as if when often the primary victims of this abuse and this hounding, where women are piled in on social media for supporting a minority in an effort to intimidate others into not speaking out in support of trans people. Just want to end on that. Um, thanks for everyone for watching. Enjoyed that. We, it was great to have. We often have people, obviously, left and centre commentators, but I think it's very important to have commentators who know the lay of the land in the Conservatives, so it's great to have Seb Payne on as well. We covered a huge amount. Um, I hope everyone is well. We've got lots of interviews coming up uh, in the week, um, so watch out for the interviews we've got ahead. And if you sign up on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84, you can support the channel and suggest interviews. Uh, you keep us going. Um, it's obviously not me doing this channel by myself. That would be ridiculous. I can barely tie my shoelaces. Uh, so you keep this running. We're not run by billionaires. We're supported by you. Um, thank you, everybody. I hope you're doing well. And I will speak to you soon. Lots of love.
thanks for listening everyone i hope you found that informative educational uh, interesting and i certainly did uh, do support us on patreon to keep the show on the road uh, forward slash owen jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to speaking to you soon imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.